Uh, I'm going to do something I, I think I've ever done, maybe once or twice, but I don't think I've ever done it. I'm going to actually repeat a sermon. Um, and I really feel like God is wanting me to do that today. And so we're going to push off our last sermon on the emotionally healthy spirituality. And I want to actually re-teach, go through uh, what I talked about on Friday night about marriage and relationships. And I was, you know, I've still been wrestling all morning. Should I just go teach my one on gladness? And then I heard Nate make fun of his wife about the music. And I thought, even our pastor needs more marriage help. So <laughs> I feel more convinced than, more than ever to do that. So if you take your Bibles, please, and turn to Matthew chapter 6. And if you are just joining us, my name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to welcome you. Thank you for uh, being with us this morning. It's a joy to be with you as we celebrate the good news of Jesus together and ask, what does the gospel mean? What does the gospel look like in the context of our relationships? And I'm going to talk about marriage this morning, maybe a little bit more pointedly, but what I would actually say is that most of the principles, almost all the principles I'm going to talk about have to deal with our relationships in general. And Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 Jesus, on the Sermon on the Mount, says this, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for your treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where the thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If you've been a Christian or growing up in the church, you've probably heard these verses, right? Don't lay up for yourselves treasures here, lay up for your treasures where? Up there. And so then we begin to ask ourselves questions like, all right, what treasures am I laying up and how do I know if they're here or there? But I would just ask this question, why does Jesus, according to this passage, why does he care so much about where we actually lay up treasure? What is it about the, the, the distinction between heaven and earth here about where our treasure is? Does Jesus just care that we do right things and lay up treasure up there? No. Why does Jesus really care about where we lay up treasure? What does verse 21 say? Where your treasure is, there will your what? Jesus isn't concerned first and foremost about your treasures. He is first and foremost concerned about your hearts. And he knows intimately the relationship between your treasure and your heart because wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And Jesus wants your heart. And, and we want Jesus' heart. And that's why he says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. That doesn't mean just like put your bank account, your spiritual money up there. It means seek the things that are above and live them out right here. He said that in the Lord's Prayer like 30 verses earlier where he says, pray that the will of the Father that is done in heaven and be done where? On earth, he's asking you to lay up treasures in heaven and, in a sense, live out the heavenly life right here. 
And if the group of people that we are, disciples, followers of Jesus, are going to live out our calling as missionaries, as, as followers of Jesus, it's going to be imperative that we don't just live for up there and ignore here but that we bring heaven down to earth. We seek the things of heaven, the righteousness, the peace, the joy that the Holy Spirit gives. And those things are the heavenly things where we lay our treasures because that's where our heart will be and we can actually be faithful followers of Jesus. And this treasure principle has great implications for relationship. It has significant ways that it begins to feel and move into the way that we have and conduct our marriages. And so that introduction, I want to just jump into this section for a minute. This will be, the, the first five minutes will be more pointed towards marriage, and then out of that will flow marriage and relationship principles. But in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul calls marriage a mystery. He, he quotes the Old Testament that God, you know, had a man and a woman, and they will leave their husband, their they'll leave their mother and their father, and they will two will become one, right? You've heard that? And then Paul says in the very, very next verse, this is a great mystery. Paul calls marriage a mystery. And again, it's not the mystery in the sense that I can't believe I've been married to this person 15 years and I have no idea who they are or what they think. And I can't believe I married this person. What was I doing? Yes, in one sense, marriage is a mystery. How two people who are so different can figure out how to live life together and still 10 years later learn something brand new. But that's not what Paul is after. He's not calling marriage a mystery what is he calling it? Why does he call it a marriage a mystery? He says in the very next phrase that in Ephesians chapter 5, he says, marriage is a mystery, and I'm speaking about Jesus and the church. He calls it a mystery that now because of Jesus and his event of coming to this earth, living his perfect life, dying the death that we should have died, and is now raised from the dead, living the life that we should be living and will be living, that event of Jesus changes everything, that now marriage makes sense. Now, my kids are in this room, and, well, only one of them, okay? I was talking to my kids regularly about this, and none of my kids are excited about getting married when they get older. None of them want kids. They're all like, why would you do that? In fact, we had this conversation yesterday, like, why would you have kids? All you have to do is spend your whole life on them, give all of your time to them, give all of your money to them. Who wants that? Now, I know they're teenagers. But I would also say that the, the value and the importance of marriage in our culture is decreasingly moving away from what it used to be, correct? Good or bad, I don't, I'm not debating that right now. I'm just saying the idea of marriage is slowly moving away from our culture. In fact, there's a stat that people of my generation, 70% of us have been married. And the new generation, only 27% of them get married before the age of 30. Like, that's insane. Like, it's just insane that how marriage is slowly moving away. And so if we kind of take away our cultural lenses and our, maybe our Christian background and we begin to just ask the question, isn't, why, why do one woman and one man come together and covenant to live their entire life together, be faithful to each other, 
Why would God design that? And it's interesting that God did this in the very beginning of the, of the Bible. In the sense, like in Genesis chapter 1, I think we have this great song about creation that Moses records for us about God's creative work of bringing nothing, something out of nothing. And then in chapter 2, we get a little bit of more of like a narrative or a story about Adam. And what we find out is there's this Garden of Eden that's beautiful. And then he creates Adam. And he puts him in the garden. And he says, Adam, name all the animals. And so Adam sits on a rock for 12 months and brings all the animals, and your cat, your dog, your blah, 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 and he gets all done, and he's like, this was fun, but God, there's nothing like me. And so God puts him into a sleep and, and forms a woman out of him, and then the very next thing, the very last thing we have about Adam and Eve in the garden, before the serpent comes in and deceives and brings a sin upon into the world, is the very first wedding. God, in a sense, walks Eve right down the aisle to Adam and says, you two are now going to become one flesh. Why did God do that? Why is this principle of marriage, of a husband and wife coming together, found in the very beginning of the Bible? Well, here's what I would say to you. The answer is this is that Adam and Eve's marriage was always pointing to something that they didn't even really understand what it was pointing to. Your marriage, if you're married, if you've been married, your marriage is pointing to something that the same thing that Adam and Eve's met, met wedding, what marriage was pointing to, ours is pointing to. So that Adam and Eve in the garden, their marriage was pointing to something in the future, and specifically... Paul says, I'm speaking about Jesus and the church. So that Adam and Eve's married relationship was many years ago. I'm not going to debate, okay? Just a long time ago. I don't know how many years ago it was, but it was a long time ago. Their marriage was designed to show the coming relationship between Jesus and the church. So fundamentally, foundationally, what is marriage? It is a covenant union between a husband and wife, a man and woman who come together to become one flesh so that in that married relationship, the picture of Jesus and the church can be mirrored and represented and displayed. And if you don't come to marriage with that fundamental foundational principle, nothing in marriage is going to make sense. I do premarital counseling a lot, and I could write a book on all the great things that I hear in premarital counseling. But I love when I get to the point where we talk about the roles of wives and husbands, and, you know, what is the role of the husbands? Husbands, you should answer this right now. <laughs> wives, this is your turn to be quiet for a minute. It's to lovingly lead, right? And wives, what, what does the Bible call you to do? That curse word that begins with S, submit. Right? And so, like, why? And so I'm like, okay, before we even get into what that all means, why? Why did God design it that way? And then it's like crickets. Well, that's what the Bible says, and we just do it. Okay, sure, that's better than nothing. But when you look at the context of a husband and wife coming together, picturing Jesus in the church, Paul says the, the man, the husband, he takes up the role of Jesus. 
And in the context of Jesus and the church, how does Jesus relate to the church? As the leader, right? As the loving leader. And that is the role that the husband takes up. That If the husband doesn't take up that role, guess what his marriage does not do properly? Reflect the purpose for which it was created. And you might be a great leader and a dictator and a jerk, and you're doing just a bad job as if you weren't doing anything. You are a loving leader that when the church sees Jesus and the beauty for who he is and the, and the love that he has for us, we just joyfully do what? Run to him. Follow him. And this is the role of the wife. It's not that Paul was a chauvinist and was like, you know, I hate women. They're boring. They're dumb. They just need to make me a sandwich. Right? Like sometimes I think we just have this role of women that is so degrading that when we hear the word submit, it's just like this consternation is inside of us. But the reason wives take up the role of submission is because they take up the role of the church. And I often say, husbands, if you would actually understand the way that Jesus lovingly leads you, that is how you will reflect that to your wife. And if your wife doesn't submit to you, I think that's more on you than on her. And the fact is, is that this is what the foundation of marriage is. So why does God hate divorce? Now, of course, you know, God gave Moses concessions for divorce. Jesus actually gave an exception for divorce. It's not that, you know, we live in a broken world where divorce happens. But why fundamentally does God hate divorce? Because when a husband and wife covenant to live together, to picture Jesus in the church, when they actually break that covenant and separate, what kind of picture are they giving? picture that Jesus is going to leave his church. Will Jesus ever leave his church? Like, can you see now where marriage maybe has a little bit more to do with the picture of Jesus in the church than just a bunch of rules to be obeyed? And so, what I want to tell you is this, is that the success of your marriage must be measured against the design for which it was created. We all have different metrics from our own experience, from our own backgrounds of what a successful marriage would look like. If I were to ask you what a successful marriage would look like, you'd be like, we, we stay married for 50 years, we have 17 kids. That's probably way too many. Yeah. Way too many, yeah, we're, we're not gonna be Duggars. But the point, I'm trying, like we have like all these metrics of like, what we think a successful marriage would be. But I want to say this, that a successful marriage is always measured against the reality for which it was designed. So you want a successful marriage? Husbands, you need to lead in love as Jesus leads and loves the church. And wives, you need to submit joyfully to the leadership of your husbands. And there's so much more that goes into that than, when I, than I want to say. But I want you to know that's what the success must be measured against. But know this. Even though that's what you measure success against, your marriage is formed in the little moments of your life. Your marriages are formed 
in the little moments. We live in America where we kind of hate the mundane in the ordinary. We hate the mundane of Monday through Friday, right? We're living for the weekend. We need something different. We need the vacation that gives us life. And yes, weekends are nice to have a break. Is it wrong to go on vacation? No, I love vacations. But if we're honest, sometimes it's just because we hate the mundane. We hate the everyday. And we think in our marriages that if we go on marriage vacations, we go to marriage seminars, and we do date night once a year, that our marriages are going to be great. But in reality, your marriages are not formed on the mountain peaks. Your marriages are formed down at the bottom of the mountain in the thousands and thousands of little moments that you have as a married couple. And again, this is in all intense relationships. This isn't just a husband and wife relationship. This is in any intense relationship that you have with other people is that it is formed in the moments, the little moments. The little moments of your marriage and relationships are so important because they are precisely that, the little moments. If I were to ask you, if I could watch your video of your film, of your relationships, your marriage this week, and I were to look at all the little moments, what would I see? In the little moments, would I see a husband coming alongside the wife and saying, you know what, I'm going to take that kid away from you and you can go out and just sit in the shade. Am I going to see a wife come along or husband and be like, you've, you know, had a really hard day, a hard thing, what can I do for you? I'm probably also going to see in the little moments of your day a, a, a car conversation where you get in an argument and the wife lashes out in anger and the husband replies back in a short, sarcastic comments. That is where your marriages are formed. Your marriage is not destroyed in the big moments. Your marriage is not grown in this big, beautiful relationship in the big moments. It's in the little moments, the moments where you ignore the deep feelings of your heart, the moments where you fail to actually apologize to your wife or your husband because you're like, and you know what? They love me. I know they love me. That wasn't a big deal. That was just a small thing. The moments you fight with each other are significant. The moments where you're on a date, and five minutes into the date, you're already what? Check, please. The moments you refuse to acknowledge your anger, your bitterness, you have the inability, as we've been talking about in this emotionally healthy spirituality, to actually communicate your feelings because you're afraid of what that's going to do to the other person or you're afraid of what's going to do to you. See, the little moments are where you love. The little moments in your life are where you hate. The little moments are where you fight, where you serve, where you demand. They are the moments where your marriage lives. So that I would actually say this, that if you are not interested in the little moments of your marriage, you're not interested in your marriage. Because the little moments shape, they form 
what your relationship actually is. And if God and His rule and His reign cannot break into those little moments, there's no hope for your marriage. Like we want God to break into us on those mountain peaks and the marriage seminars, right? Those are times God can break in. But if you're not going to let God break in to those little moments where your life is lived, there's no hope for your marriage. And there's something significant that happens in these little moments of our day. In these little moments, in these thousands of little moments that we have, something really unique takes place, and it's called this. Habits are formed. In those little moments, whether you're aware of it or not, relational habits are formed. And those relational habits and the everyday moments are, are the tracks on which your marriage actually moves. Habits are a part of God's creational design. Whether you like habits or not, that's how God has made you. And in one sense, you should be really thankful for habits, right? Aren't you glad every time you bend over to tie your shoe, it's not like the very first time you try to tie your shoe? You remember learning how to try to tie your shoe? It took you like five hours to do the two bunny loops and have the bunny go through and pull through crap. It's not. Right? I mean, like, aren't you thankful you don't have to stop and think about how to tie your shoe every day? Aren't you thankful that, you know, when you drink coffee, you don't have to, like, figure out how to get it to your mouth like a little kid and have it spill all down your shirt like Nate did right before he preached last week? <laughs> we need relationship help. Habits are the things that we do so often that we no longer need to think about them anymore. They become easy. In sports, we call this, you develop muscle memory. Okay? I, I don't know how this has happened. I'm thanking God for it. My family's turned into a basketball family. Okay? And we stay up and watch NBA till midnight. And, you know, and when you shoot a basketball, you don't think elbow in... Guide hand on the side, follow through, up, put back. I don't think about that every time I shoot a basketball, right? What I'm trying to teach my kids is how to get right muscle memory so that when you shoot, you, you can figure out how to do it. But know this, that in those thousands of little moments on the basketball court when you're shooting, muscle memory is being formed and your shot is being shaped. In the same way, in the thousands of little moments in your relationships, habits are being formed. Emotional habits of how to relate to each other. Relational habits of what's going to happen. And, and, and what's so fun and so annoying is that your spouse knows all of those habits, don't they? And sometimes they excuse them. Sometimes you push the button to make them angry. But those habits are shaping your marriage. I said it's hardwired into the creational design of humanity to actually be people who are formed in habits. But there's something that happens at the garden in Genesis chapter 3 that is forever changed habits. Is that now our habits have the ability to be destructive and sinful. 
So even though it's a wonderful thing that God gave us the ability to live out of habits, it is now a destructive thing because of the curse of sin upon the world, so that now that you and I, our marriages, are filled with good habits and bad habits. Your marriage is always being shaped by your habits. And so if I could view into your life again, video of your life this week, what kind of habits do you and your spouse have? In the little moments, are they ones that are reflecting the design of your marriage of lovingly leading your wife and joyfully submitting so that the two of us as one can actually reflect Jesus in the church? Or is all of this defensiveness within us, is all of the emotional upheaval inside of us so deep that we keep our spouse at a distance? Is it we lash out in anger towards them, or we are sarcastic towards them, or we are purposely staying away from them even though we live and sleep six inches away from them? It's impossible for your marriage not to be shaped by these habits. And these habits that we have have been shaped way before you even said, I do. These habits that we have had inside of us are things that we have grown up with that when we entered into the context of a married relationship, now all of that stuff that we've experienced and have shaped our hearts and our lives, we now bring into the marriage context. This is what makes marriage so hard. It's not always the marriage itself. It's usually all the crap before the marriage that we don't know what to do with when we get in the context of marriage. So that now all the bad habits that we have been shaped by, we now do with the person we say we love the most. And one of my friends has told me this, and I'm wanting to see it's being true more and more. He says that in your moments of tense relationships, he has this little quip that says this, if it's hysterical, it's historical. And not hysterical in the sense that you're laughing out loud. But if it creates true hysteria within you, and hysteria within us is very different. Some of us, as we've been talking about in this emotional healthy spirituality, if we're at a five, the emotional hysteria that we have in that tense goes from a five to a ten, and we just explode. Others of us, hysteria doesn't lead us to explode, it leads us to what? Just get in a little box and leave me alone and I'm not going to talk. And when you see in in, in those habits, when things happen in those thousands of little moments, usually there's not two screamers. I don't know why, just opposites attract, and maybe you do have, both of you both go into your own little quiet place and ignore each other, and maybe you both just scream. But most of the married contexts and relationships I see and have experienced in my own life is I like to go hide, and you just leave me alone, and I'm going to get in my box. And my wife was more of the, she was never like a screamer, but she would be more verbal and more expressive. And the way you fight is shaped by habits. The way you love is shaped by habits. So if you're following with me, marriage must be measured against success for which it was designed, Jesus and the church. That, that marriage is being formed in the thousands of little moments where you are developing habits of how you relate to each other. 
And now we come back to Matthew chapter 6 that we started in the very beginning. It's this, is that as you are living in those little moments of your daily life and habits are being formed, out of those habits, out of those actions, your treasure is being revealed. You want to know what you treasure? Just examine the thousands of little moments in your married relationship and the habits that you have formed in the context of that relationship. And then out of that, you can ask yourself, this, why do I treasure this? It's because this is what I love. When your treasure is on things of this earth, the bond of that marriage is severed. It is, it is dramatically hurts. Your treasure is that thing or that person that you look to or that you want more than anything from redemption from your brokenness. And only two people who will seek to lay up treasure in heaven and have the heart of Jesus are going to be the people who can actually have a marriage that reflects the reality for which designed and can learn in those little moments to form habits that are actually righteousness in ways that bring flourishing. And so in the little moments of your life, the habits of your relationships are determined by the treasures of your hearts. Wives, in ways you maybe not even, don't even realize. You have attached your identity and your meaning and your purpose, your inner sense of well-being and, 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 and happiness. You've attached it to the orderliness of your home. The cleanliness of your home is what brings you ultimate peace and happiness. Your favorite Bible verse is cleanliness is next to... That's not in the Bible. But that's your motto. And one of the things we need to always ask ourselves is where our treasure is and what our treasure is creates an environment. This is not a neutral activity where I just treasure things of the earth and that's just me. No, what you actually treasure creates an environment with the relationships and the people that are around you. And if, wives, you've attached your inner sense of well-being and identity to the order and cleanliness of your home, ask yourself, what does that create in my married family relationship? And hear this, too, by the way, because I'm going to go off on these people, and I'm going to go off on me in a minute, too, so don't worry. But is it wrong to want and to have an orderly and clean home? Is that wrong? It's not wrong. But some of you can, can see a blanket that's not folded correctly from three rooms away. You take crumbs on the kitchen counter as a personal affront to you. How dare they? You follow people in the rooms making sure they don't make the room look like someone actually lives in that room. The house is not for living, it's for cleaning. And what you create is a constantly critical spirit. You're always on people's backs. You think you have been singled out by God, particularly to suffer on Christ's behalf by living with a bunch of slobs. And I say this lovingly. 
but nicely, you don't have a slob problem. You have a treasure problem. You don't have a other people problem. You have a treasure problem. You actually invest more emotional energy and care to the physical surroundings of your home than the actual people you say you love and are committed to. It's a treasure problem, and it's killing your marriage. It's not another person problem. It's a you problem. Men, maybe you don't... I did talk to someone who said, that's me. I'm the orderly, neat one in the house. But a lot of the guys I interact with and talk with, you know what we attach our identity to? We attach our identity to comfort, and when I get home, let me have my time. Anyone like that? I worked all day. I busted my butt. I made all the money for the family, so there's food on the table. Let me come home and just have some me time. And what does that create? It creates a, I mean, there's so many things that it creates, but it creates a mentality that your family is actually second. What is most important to you is your job. Guys, you should get out of that car and being like, after the day, long day at work, and be like, all right, now my real day is starting because I actually get to be with the people God's called me to be with. The leave me alone mentality, your kids and your wives are now afraid to talk to you. Do you want that? No, see, it's not just wives and orderliness. It's all of us have a treasure problem. We want things of this earth. We are not looking after Jesus' heart in heaven and trying to bring that here. We're actually just trying to create heaven on earth through our wrong treasures. Because here's the reality, is that a desire for a good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes a ruling thing. A desire for a good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes a God thing. Is it wrong to want to just have a little space when you get home? No. Is it wrong to want to have a nice, clean house? No. Is it wrong to want certain things in your house to be a certain way? No. Is it wrong to want pleasure? No. None of these things in and of themselves are wrong. But when they become way more important than they should be, and they begin to rule your relationships and, and rule the way you interact with people, that becomes a, in every sense of the word, a damning thing. Some of you want too much control, and it's killing your relationships. Some of you always want to be right. Even when you know you're wrong, you still argue for the wrong thing just so that you can be right. Anyone like that? I'm like that. I know I'm wrong, but I'm still going to be right. And it's killing your relationships. See, your relationships are always victimized or enhanced by what you treasure. Your relationships are always victimized or enhanced by what you treasure. And those marriages that have two people who are seeking to, the, to have the treasures that belong to the heart of Jesus in heaven and live those out right here are the ones who, their marriages are not perfect. They struggle. They fight. But in those little moments 
of habits are being shaped and formed. The Spirit of God is coming upon them and they're asking for forgiveness and they're learning to repent and they're learning to love their wife and they're learning to submit to their husbands. In light of all this, it's impossible not to finish and talk about one of the primary purposes for which God has us in these intense relationships, whether it be marriage or, or just friends. If we don't know what God is up to in these marriages, in these relationships, we're going to have a really hard time understanding what we're supposed to be doing in them. And, and the time between the already and the not yet, what I mean by that is if you're a follower of Jesus and you placed your trust in Jesus and you're part of God's kingdom, you now belong to Jesus. But you're not at the new world yet. You're not quite who you should be. You're not fully formed into the image of Jesus yet. And so between the time that you begin to follow Jesus and the time that you actually become like Jesus, 1 John chapter 3, there is this process of transformation that we undergo as followers of Jesus. Okay, and I don't know if you're like me. I'm like, God, you could just flip a switch. And I'd be transformed. Life would be so much easier. But that is not how God transforms us, is through a switch. You know how God transforms us? Little by little, in the thousands and thousands of little moments where your heart is being shaped by the treasures that you love. That is how God is transforming you between the time of the already and the not yet. What is God up to? What is motivating God right now? God is in the business of treasure-smashing, habit-breaking marriages and relationships that will pursue the treasures of the kingdom of God. We, we in, in Christian theology, we call this process sanctification. That's one of the words you could use for it. And I want you to know that Husbands and wives, this is what God is up to in your marriage. Husbands, you need to actually learn to love your wife because as you love her, she is actually going to transform you into the image of Jesus. If you don't want to be transformed into the image of Jesus, don't get married. <laughs> because that is what's going to happen all of the stuff inside of you that is anti-Jesus is going to be brought to the surface and worked out, and you're going to be able to see all the sin in your life. God is up to progressively changing you to become like Jesus. God's agenda is not your happiness. God's agenda is your holiness. God's agenda is not giving you what you want right now. God's agenda is giving you what you really want and need. See, we settle for, for small treasure. It's like we could, we, could, we could go to Burrito Perdido when there's Chipotle around. We could... Make our own steak or go to Ruth Chris. And the, and the context of that is, is like we, we settle for this small treasure, the treasure of the things of this earth, when God is offering to you something far superior. 
That only gives you happiness. It gives you joy and peace and righteousness. See, God is actually after your good. God wants you to be holy, not because he just wants you to have a set of rules, but it's because in the context of being holy, your relationships can flourish. Do you know what destroys all of your relationships? Unholiness. You know what actually enhances all of your relationships? Holiness. And the holiness code of the new new covenant of of the Christian, the holiness code today is what? Love God by what? Loving others. That's the holiness code. You got two rules that are really one. Love God by loving others. And if a marriage relationship would come into the context is that if we would learn to love God together by loving each other, by fighting our sin, our marriage would actually flourish. And the good news of all of this is that in this laboratory where we are trying to be transformed and progressively being shaped into the image of Jesus, you're not doing that to please God. You're not doing that in order to make it to heaven. You're not doing that to be a good Christian. You're not doing that to be a good person. In this laboratory, the test has already been determined. What I mean by that is that Jesus is actually the one who's in the testing grounds. Jesus actually passed all of the tests for you in his perfect obedience and his perfect life for you. And now in his resurrection, he is giving you all of that righteousness so that right now you in the sight of Jesus are perfectly complete. And now you're learning to live out that perfect completion in Jesus. This is not a test to become a Christian. This is not a test to please God in the sense of, will he like me? This married relationship in which we're treasuring Jesus together so that our hearts have the heart of Jesus and we're being transformed into Jesus is working out of the reality that Jesus already passed the test for you. So what does that do for you? It lets you let go of your guilt and your shame. It lets you walk out of here not being like, I am a complete failure. You are. But in Jesus, you're not. In Jesus, you have the ability now to actually have flourishing relationships. And that should give you hope. That should give you joy that all of the past of your relationship is now and already been forgiven. It's under the blood of Jesus, and we get to live in the freedom that he's working out his righteousness in us. So, Father, thank you for a few minutes to process and think through this passage again about where your treasure is. There's Your heart will be also. And we thank you, Jesus, that you are concerned about our heart, not just our treasures. And so give us the heart of Jesus, we pray, so that our relationships would actually flourish. And in that flourishing, we would actually be a picture of the new world that is coming right now that would be a dramatic witness, an attractional witness for you. And so we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.